Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad that you decided to join us today. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Song of Solomon, which is one of the most interesting books of the Bible, and we think that you will find it interesting too. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. So I'm very thankful for Audrey, and she really um, did a, she, she blazed a trail for us, didn't she, of authenticity and honesty by reading the nerdy love notes between her and her and Chris when they were dating. I, I, I laughed so much when she read those, I thought they were just really funny to hear. And uh, it made me think about all of the juicy love notes that Karis and I wrote to one another when we were dating, and I tried to find some of those letters, but couldn't. I know they're buried in a box somewhere. I know we still have them. I just couldn't find them. But what I remember of them is that they were equally as sappy and make you gag as Chris and Audrey's were. Only the difference is Chris and Audrey are engineers, so their letters kind of sounded like the Big Bang Theory. Uh, our letters, Karis and I were in Bible college studying to be missionaries, so our letters were very over-spiritual. They, we over-spiritualized everything. So our, I would say things like, you know, I love you with the sacrificial love of Christ that builds a shining barrier between us and blah, blah, blah. Sprinkle in a few Bible verses, and you've got a, a love note from a Bible college student is basically what ours sounded like. And as great as all of that was in our lives, it all came crashing down shortly after we were married, and we headed smack into our first conflict. It was over curtains, of all things. You see, my sweet bride felt that we needed curtains, and I didn't even think twice about curtains. Like, we don't even need curtains. I'd be, you know. So this was our argument, and it broke down in two parts. Part one was the concept of curtains. Like, she, she didn't think, you know, she felt vulnerable, and people looking in our windows, and our windows look naked, and you have to have... And I'm, I'm thinking, hey, if, if people look in my window, and they see me in my skivvies eating my breakfast in my house, and... That's like their problem. That's on them. That ain't on me. I'll get you a counselor. You know what I mean? She's like, I don't want that. So that's our first argument. And then the second part of that argument was when we went shopping for curtains, and I realized how expensive they are. And for context, we were dirt poor, fresh out of Bible college. And, uh, you know, I was, I was a youth pastor at a church, made $12,000 a year, and these curtains were going to cost as much as I was making in a month. And I'm like, uh, no, there's no, mm -mm, there's no way that we can afford curtains. Like, that's not going to happen, right? I'm like, okay, here's our options. We eat this month or other people don't see you naked. I, like, that's like, those are our options, you know what I mean? We're, it was, 
a big mess. And thankfully, her mother stepped in and rescued us, and she can sew. So she sewed some curtains out of material that she already had, and praise God for my mother-in-law. But the point is, all of that shining barriers and heavenly bliss and Bible verses and prayers over our super-blessed-by-God relationship that we had totally over-spiritualized, all of that fell apart in that moment. And we had to face this really important fact that conflicts are unavoidable. Resolving a conflict and doing it properly, that's intentional. See, conflict, we learned, is a normal part of any healthy relationship. You're taking two imperfect people and you're bringing them together. I mean, that's bound to have some bumps along the way. See? Conflicts, though, typically center around three different things. I break it down between our preferences, our priorities, and our principles. Sometimes we argue over preferences, right? She likes to load the dishwasher this way. I like to load the dishwasher that way. She likes our bedroom to, you know, I like our bedroom to be a normal temperature. She likes our bedroom to be freezing, see? And these are preferences, and when you have a preference, you compromise, and we figure it out. Sometimes they're over priorities, priorities like things that are important. You know, she has um, Christmas. She has certain Christmas traditions. I have certain Christmas traditions. Uh, she thinks that we should. Um, she likes to use her leisure time this way. I like to use leisure time that way. See, important priorities and where they clash. Well, we, you know, we figure it out and you accommodate, you learn to accommodate one another so that both needs are met. When it comes to principles, there's no compromise because principles are bedrock. Principles are those values, those things that you're willing to die for. And this is why the Bible's so clear about being equally yoked, especially in marriage. Because if you get married to someone and you share different principles, it's literally a setup for constant, unresolved conflict. It's why it's so important to figure these things out before you get married. Let's talk through what our non-negotiables are, because there's no way that we're going to bring those together. Does this make sense? My point is simply this, that every relationship has conflict, and we must embrace conflict and navigate it in a healthy way that builds up the relationship instead of tearing it down. Because what we ultimately decide is that what we have together, whether we're friends, whether we're church friends, whether it's a marriage, whatever the relationship is, this relationship is worth fighting for. The same is true in our church community as well. It's why one-third of our annual fellowship covenant that we sign as a church focuses on resolving conflict because we've decided as a church that what God is doing between us is important enough that we will work through the conflict and that we will use it to become more united rather than to simply split apart, see? And so that brings us to the very first question that all of us has to answer before we even talk about conflict, and that's this. The first question is, are other people important enough to me to work out problems that will inevitably rise? 
You see, the way that I, the way that we engage in conflict, it reveals the value that we place on other people. Are other people important enough to me to work out the problems that will inevitably arise? Or do I not value people, and when problems arise, I just say, uh, forget you and walk away, and you say, forget you, and you walk away, and we split apart. See? You see, so the way that we handle conflict is actually a value statement on the value we place on other people. Now, this morning, we turn into Song of Songs, and we're in a Song of Songs, chapters 5 and 6, and so it would be helpful if you open up your Bibles there because we're going to walk through those two chapters, and we're going to witness this couple navigate conflict in a healthy and in a life-giving way. Now, here's a disclosure. Their conflict is something that probably every married couple, married couple, has encountered, Okay? However, so we don't want to focus on how they got into their conflict. What we want to focus on is how they resolved the conflict. Does that make sense? So maybe how they got into it might be unique to a married couple. But how they resolved it, there's lessons there that apply in every one of our relationships. Does that sound fair? So, so we just need to kind of think about that as we're walking through this. Obviously, this is a married couple and they're having their little thing, but how they do it applies to all of us. So here's how we start. Chapter 5, I'll start with verse 2. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Stop right there. In other words, she's having a dream. So this is a dream, okay? Now, that means you have to give it a little bit of latitude. And not only is it a dream, but it's a dream in a song. And so we really have to give it some latitude, okay? How many of your dreams make perfect sense? Okay, right, not usually. So, you understand? That's what we're working with. So here's what she says. Here's what she sees in her dream. Listen, my beloved is knocking. And he says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Okay, now. This is similar language that he said to her on their wedding night back in chapter 4. So what do you think is on that man's mind? All right, okay. So my head is drenched with dew, meaning I've been working all day, baby. It has been a hard day. And now I'm home with you, the love of my life. And he's ready for some loving with the missus, okay? Now, he's not wrong for wanting to make love with his wife. That's a normal desire for a husband to have for his wife, okay? It's legitimate in marriage. They've already stated to one another that, you know, she has called him her apple tree, meaning that she finds rest under his shade and she, she's at peace with him. And he has called her his dove and his... and. Um, and his uh, garden, meaning the same sort of thing. So what they're saying, they've already determined, okay, she's his person, he is her person, they're in a covenant marriage together, in a relationship together. So he's not asking for something that would be out of the ordinary, okay? Now how does she respond? Verse 3, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Um, okay, so let me just translate that directly from the Hebrew. 
I had a headache. <laughs> right? I haven't shaved my legs. And I think you had garlic for lunch today. And what just happened? The plane got shot out of the sky, right? Record scratch, turn off your romantic music, uh, turn out the lights, it's over. See, that's what's happened. Yikes, their expectations have collided, okay? Now what he wants and what she wants are two different things. And for the record, both of their desires are legitimate. There's nothing wrong with him wanting to make love with his wife, and there's nothing wrong with her saying, I want some sleep, okay? Both desires are legitimate, but what do they do? How do we merge our wants and our desires in a way that strengthens a relationship instead of weakens it? That's a good question, isn't it? This is the turning point, if you think about it, in every conflict, whether it's marriage or any relationship. When what I want collides with what you want, and in that split second, we have a decision to make. And it is a split second. The decision is this. Will I try to control and manipulate you in order to get what I want? Or will I lay that down in favor of something greater? Do you see how that's a, and that's a split second decision to make. Will I try to control and manipulate you right now? To get what I want, or will I lay that down in favor of something greater? And that greater something is intimacy. Intimacy is what we all ultimately want because it's what God created us for. He created us for intimacy with Him and intimacy with other people. We were hardwired for community, that's, that's built into us as human beings. See, but we lost it in the fall. Our sin against God actually broke it. So when our desires collide, and they do, we have a golden opportunity in that moment to either taste the paradise that we lost or add another thorn to the curse. This is our choice. And how many of you know that intimacy is more difficult than simply manipulating and maneuvering to get what I want. You notice that? Intimacy takes hard work. Quite honestly, it's easier to fight. It really is. I think that's why we fight more often. It's just easier. Intimacy takes work. And in conflict, we have a choice. Will I win this argument, or will I try to win the heart? I can either win the argument, or I can win a heart. I can't have both. And notice that God has done the same in his relationship with us. That God has chosen to actually win our hearts, not the argument. Think about that. Like if anybody could win the argument, it would be God. Would you agree? Hands down, right? He can pull rank, smash us in a heartbeat, and win the argument. But he doesn't do that. God has taken the much more difficult road of winning our hearts. And the reason why it's more difficult, it requires dying to myself. And this is why I love the Song of Songs so much. Because 
You know, I, I admit, I didn't fully appreciate it till I started studying it for this summer. I really didn't. It's just one of those little books I've just sort of known was in the Bible, but never really paid much attention to. The more that I've studied it, the more in awe I am of this little book. That here in the heart of our Bibles, we see the heart of God. And when we see the heart of God, it's a melody. What's on the heart of God? A melody. And it's a melody telling us that we were made for intimacy. That the kind of closeness with another human being that we see depicted in the Song of Songs, that's possible. And that the kind of closeness we could have, that we could have this kind of closeness in our relationship with God, that's possible. And I love the fact that it's not a sermon, that it's not a seminar, that it's not a speech. It's a song. It's a song. It's, it's truth set to music so that it rings in our souls like church bells, you know, bouncing forth, ringing, 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 telling us, hey, you don't have to be lonely. You don't have to be lonely. Intimacy can be yours if you're brave enough to enter in. That's the key, <laughs> because intimacy is terrifying. And conflict is a golden opportunity for intimacy. So what does this couple do? Let's see what they do, okay? Now we're just going to read through this. So as we read through it, I'm going to make comments so it's important for you to follow along. So we start here with verse 4. So she says, I take it off my room. Verse 4, he says, My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. Now, again, this is a little weird because it looks like instead of taking her no for an answer, he just tries to break the door down. And that's not what's happening at all. Okay. So think about it like this. Like, remember, it's a dream. And all of this is happening simultaneously. So I think it's more, it's better to merge verse 4 with verse 2 and, and think of it like, you know, this is all happening at once. And so he's knocking on the door, going for the latch, calling out to her, if you will, right? And she's going, I'm tired, I got a headache. So you've got this whole conversation happening at the same time. And then, but in verse 5, she changes her mind. She says, I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. So verse 5, she changes her mind. She, she delays a little bit in answering him, but then when she finally decides she's going to do that, she gets up to open the door, so to speak, metaphorically, right? And she discovers two things. She discovers that he's gone, and she discovers that he's left myrrh on the doorknob. Now, myrrh, that's interesting, because myrrh um, is an ancient way of maybe bringing flowers or a box of chocolates to somebody. When you want to make up, you know, when there's a kind of an issue, and you're saying, hey, you're really important to me, and let's talk about this, you know, we, you might bring a little token, you know, maybe a cup of coffee, perhaps, or something like that nowadays, chocolates, flowers. Back then, it was anointing oil, and we would leave that 
at the doorstep to say, hey, I want to work this out. So him leaving myrrh on the doorknob is an ancient way of saying, hey, we hit a snag. Um, you are really important to me. Let's work on this together. Okay? And now verse 6, she discovers that he's gone. Now, here's the question. Is he truly gone or is he metaphorically gone? You decide. It's a song and it's a dream, like I said, so you really have to give it some space. I think that the bottom line is this, that there is a separation that has happened between them. Wouldn't you agree? That in this disagreement, in this difference of desires, there has been a little bit of a chasm developed, some separation. And she feels it intensely. This is what we find in verse 7. In verse 7, she says, The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Now, this is weird because she's the queen. Remember, King Solomon married her. So now she's the queen. So what are these dudes doing beating up on the queen? Question, right? So who are the watchmen in this? Well, the watchmen, we meet them for the first time back in chapter 3, verse 3 where they serve as her conscience to actually lead her to her lover. And now here, again, they, quote, beat her up. And what this is, is it's a metaphorical way of saying that she felt really bad, like her her conscience was stricken over this. She's recognized that there's a separation between the two of them, and she feels the weight of it intensely. That's what she's saying, that her conscience beat her up, so to speak, okay? So verse 8, I love what she does now. She enlists the help of some girlfriends. Verse 8, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. This is super important because sometimes when you're in a conflict with someone else, you need the help of a wise and trusted third party. I mean, some conflicts we can resolve, just the two of us, right? That's, that's fine, perfectly fine. But other times, you do need to lean on the community that God has given to you to help you work through whatever the conflict is. And that's what she does, essentially. And I love how the girlfriends respond. Look at verse 9. How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? Okay, okay, these girls, they kill me, right? They're defensive. I I love it. They're standing up for their girlfriend. You know, they've got her back. And they're like, oh, girl, he doesn't deserve you. You know, that's kind of the idea. It sort of reminds me, like this week, uh, Karis and I, you know, we were in Miami with our oldest daughter, Catherine, and um, about a year ago, uh, Catherine was dating a guy, and that guy broke up with her, and Catherine is, she's doing well, right? She's recovered, and everything's fine now, Uh, and she blesses him, but he's still part of that church, you know? And Karis and I had dinner with Catherine and one of her best girlfriends the other night, and they got to talking about it, and her girlfriend still does not talk to him. Like, she won't talk. She goes, no, I won't talk to him. Uh-uh. And Catherine said, you can. It's okay. Like, we're cool. Everything's good. She's like, no, I'm not going to talk to him. And that's, that's kind of how a girlfriend does. Like, she's standing up for her girl. She's not going to talk to him ever again. And I think that's what these girls are doing. How is he better than anybody else? You know, they're, they're indignant. They're defensive of their girl. Well, she answers their question. Verses 10 through 16, and she answers it. 
Look what she says. I'll just read the whole thing. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body's like polished ivory decorated with lapis lazuli. He's jacked. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. He hasn't skipped like day. He's solid. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He's altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This, my favorite part, is my friend, she says, daughters of Jerusalem. Wow, let me just work through this real quick. She says he's radiant, meaning he lights up a room when he walks into it. He's ruddy. It's a Hebrew way of saying he's ruggedly handsome. Interestingly, King David is also mentioned in the Bible as being ruddy. And Solomon is David's son, so apparently Solomon got his rugged good looks from his dad. He's ruddy. He's outstanding among 10,000. In other words, he's one in a million. He's got dove eyes, meaning he brings peace to me. He's peaceful, see? Um, His lips drip myrrh. That's interesting because remember, he left myrrh on the doorknob, and myrrh was a symbol of wanting to reconcile. And now his lips drip with myrrh, meaning he's speaking words of reconciliation. She knows that this man wants to reconcile with her. We noted he's got chiseled muscles and strong legs. The guy's jacked. She certainly appreciates a nice six-pack, apparently. His mouth is sweetness itself. He's lovely. This is my beloved, she says. This is my friend. My friend. And by the time she's done listing all of these great things about her man, her friends want to find him, too. Do you see what they say in chapter 6, verse 1? Well, where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn that we may look for him with you? Isn't that something? By the time she's done, now they're all on the hunt to find this guy and to restore this relationship. This is an important principle when resolving conflict. Listen, it's easy to demonize and to villainize the person who hurt you. And, and to use that, this one hurt as a reason then to list all the other things that they've done wrong and all the other ways that they're a terrible person, it's easy to do that. That makes my flesh feel good because it justifies my hurt and my anger, right? Rather than just saying, wow, this really hurt me. I'm hurt. I, I tend to pile onto that and justify my hurt. And I need to resist the temptation to do that. See, she doesn't do that at all. What does she do? The exact opposite. Oh, she praises this guy. He is phenomenal. He's this and he's that. He's radiant, ruddy, and strong, and peaceful, and all these things. And see what, And by the time she's done, she hasn't alienated herself from him. She's actually drawn herself to him. Now she wants to make this work. See how powerful that is? See, we can fight fire with fire but it'll burn your house down. It's not a great way to fight, see? 
She focuses on what she loves about him, and that actually fueled her desire to reconcile. Now, chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, the dream jumps, because remember, it's a dream, so they're allowed to be a little funny with this. And suddenly, he shows up, and he's in his garden, which means he never really left. Look at what verses 2 and 3 say. My beloved has gone down into his garden to the beds of spices to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He browses among the the lilies. So in other words, uh, well, he's right there. So how did that happen? I thought they were just looking for him. And now he's there. Yeah, we don't know. You have to give it room. It's a dream again. Do your dreams always make sense? Not exactly. However it worked out, they're now together again. And a moment ago, she was speaking about him. And now he is speaking directly to her. And let's see what he says to her, okay? Verses 4 through 9. He says, you are as beautiful as Terza, my darling. Do you notice the change in pronouns? You. You are, so he's speaking to her directly, as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. Come <laughs> Okay, we, we talked about this, right? Ancient Hebrew poetry different imagery than we might use, but he means well. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is missing. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be, and eighty concubines, and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines praised her. Wow. You see what he does with her? He begins by saying, first of all, you are beautiful as Terza. You're lovely as Jerusalem. So Terza is a beautiful city in the northern part of the country, and Jerusalem was a city located in the southern part of the country. In essence, he's saying, you are beautiful from head to toe. And then he says, you are majestic as troops majestic. Okay, ladies, just, just for a second, let me ask you something, ladies. I know you, you're, the man that you love has probably never said that you're majestic. It's not a word that we use much these days. But can I ask you just to just think for a second, how would that make you feel if your husband or if the man you loved, right, came to you and just genuinely from his heart said to you, sweetie, you are majestic. Like, I'm in awe of you. Does that mean something to you, ladies? I think it does. He's building her up. He's esteeming her, isn't he? Not only that, he doubles down on it, and he says, you overwhelm me. I mean, okay, stop looking at me. I can't take it anymore. Wow. Uh, you're, you're making me melt in your presence, see? And then, and then he says, your hair, your teeth, your temples. No, you know, we joke about that. But essentially what he's doing is he's praising her femininity. She's the epitome of femininity. He's saying, you are the ultimate woman. 
And not only that, you're the queen among queens. 60 queens, all these other people he mentions. But you are a one and only. You're unique. You are above all others. And not only does he say it, but then he says other people. Young women see her and they praise her. So young women look up to this queen and to say, look at you, you are magnificent. They agree with him, see? That's what he's saying. That's her reputation. Isn't it beautiful that we see this couple building one another up instead of tearing one another down? I mean, I know that the language is poetic and it's kind of sappy. Okay, I get that. And you're not going to talk to your person that way, probably. That's not how we talk in real life. But you get the heart of it, don't you? That instead of tearing one another down, they're building one another up. And by the time they're done building one another up, whatever it was the conflict was over is really inconsequential almost, isn't it? They're ready to be restored. So what can we learn from this? Well, number one, conflicts happen in every relationship. Eh? So if you have a conflict in your relationship, it doesn't mean that your relationship is bad. You're normal. Congratulations. And the, the second thing to learn is this, that when conflict does happen, well, you can actually use it to strengthen the relationship and not tear it down. Let's begin to see conflict as an opportunity to seize, to make our relationship better than to actually let it be an opportunity to tear us down. You, you agree, it could go either way, couldn't it? So let's choose the better way. And number three, do not fight for a win. You fight for intimacy. If there's a winner and a loser in your argument, you both lost. Plain and simple. What you're aiming for here is a closer, tight, more tight-knit unified relationship that honors Jesus even more than it did before the conflict. This is the goal. This is what we're moving towards. See, now, the rest of the chapter, uh, verses 10 through 13 of chapter 6, are very tricky to translate, okay? So I'm, I'll be honest with you. Uh, what I say from here on out about chapter 6 you maybe want to dis you could disagree with me on if you want to. I mean, scholars disagree on it, okay? It's a very tricky, difficult passage to translate, but let me just try to slug through it and do my very best, okay? Chapter verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10, is framed as a rhetorical question. Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? Now, what scholars agree on is that this is written about the woman. She's the one being talked about. She's the one who appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars. What we disagree on is who's saying it. Uh, if you have your NIV Bible, it lists it as the friends saying it. If you have a New Living Translation Bible, it will say it that the man is the one speaking these words. Just to illustrate how scholars differ in how to read this exactly. But here's, I think, the point. Rather than get hung up on who's talking, the point is this. I think that what's really happening is they're building up, further building up this woman. They're further restoring her, okay? And this is huge. Why? Because it was the woman, remember, who rejected her husband's desire for love, 
right, because she was tired. And we already said that's not wrong. We already said that for the record. Neither of them was wrong, right? However, between the two of them, she was clearly the one that felt the most grief-stricken about it. Was she not the one who had the watchman beat her up? See, remember? So she, she felt that more strongly in her own soul. Does that make sense? And so she's in need of restoration, and that's what they're doing. It's like doubling down. You know, he just finished saying, man, you're majestic, and you're wonderful, you're awesome, you're overwhelming, you're all these things. And then whoever's saying this, whether he's saying it more or it's the friends agreeing with him, it's just compounding it to build up this woman to restore her. And I think this is an important point, that when you're resolving conflict, restoration is the final step. Restoration is the final step. So he restores her with his words. She's the queen of queens, and the friends agree with him in building her up. And incidentally, I think we should say this is not just blowing smoke Okay, I think it's important that we see that this is genuine. I mean, he's genuinely building her up, okay? And again, verses 11 and 12 are difficult to tell who's doing the speaking exactly. Most commentators believe that it's the woman speaking, honestly, not the man. Although in my NIV Bible, it says it's the man speaking. Again, I don't know that it really matters who's saying the words exactly as much as what they mean. So here's what it says. I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. So in other words, I've inspe I'm inspecting our love. I I'm, I'm evaluating our relationship. I've gone down into the grove trees. I'm, I'm inspecting it. Any new growth? Anything there? And then verse 12, before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. So in essence, what's being said there is we, we looked at our relationship. We evaluated our relationship. Is love still here? Do we still have something between us? And they said what they saw just swept them off their feet. Wow. Yes, we have something here that is really special. Let's celebrate what we have in our relationship. That's a great way to end a conflict, don't you think? Let's celebrate the closeness that we enjoy in this friendship, in this marriage, this whatever this relationship is. And then I love verse 13. Verse 13 begins with the friends, come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. And then he ends by saying, why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? Now, commentators differ on what the dance of Mahanaim is. We're not sure exactly. But one of the strongest ideas and theories is this, that the dance of Mahanaim was a battle dance. That it was something that armies would do the night before a big, a big battle. You know, you light a bonfire, and you get your army dancing around it, you hype up, get ready for the fight the next day. And what he's saying here is, we're not going to do that. This fight ends right here. It's over. Isn't that what love does? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. We're not going to look at this as on the dance of my naim. This battle dance is over. That is not happening. We are done. 
I love it. The conflict is resolved. Drop it. We move on. We move on. Now, let's put all this together. We've learned a few things from this couple. Learned a few things about what not to do. And we've learned a few things about what to do. So first, let's look at what not to do. What do we learn not to do? First, you don't pout or isolate. Even though that's our temptation, is to isolate, to, to separate from one another. You don't do that. You don't pout or isolate. We do not blame one another. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. Avoid blaming. Number three, we aim for victory. We aim for aiming for victory, what not to do. Do not aim for victory. I'm sorry. Do not aim for victory. Remember, if one of you wins and one of you loses, you both lost. Number four, you do not break up and write a Taylor Swift song, you know? Like, I've be stink to be one of her ex-boyfriends. You get a song written about you, but that's about it. So number five, we do not attack the other person's character. You notice they didn't do that at all, did they? They resisted the temptation to do that. We do, we do not handle everything alone. Some conflicts we can work out together. Yes, absolutely. But other times, it is healthy and it is wise to call in a trusted, wise third party, a friend who can bring you some godly direction and speak into the situation for you. And then seven, do not use foul language and name-calling. Can I just say this, like, Christian family, Christian husband, wife, foul language and name-calling has no place in your home. Zero place. And, and I would just urge you as your pastor, do not tolerate it in your home. Do not tolerate it. It's just purely unacceptable. So that's a seven. Now, what do we do? Okay, what do we do? Well, number one, you move towards one another. See, we, we've, got a, we've got a problem. Uh, we're we're going to, he left myrrh on the door handle, did he not? Right, we want to work this out. Maybe, you know, hey, look, maybe we need a moment to take a breather. That is true, I'll give you that. But you don't need to take a month. Follow? Okay, so, so we're going to move towards one another. Second, we're going to praise one another. We're not going to blame each other. Okay, this is not your fault. This is not my fault. You are a good-hearted person. I know what God's doing in my heart, right? We're going to praise one another. We're going to aim for intimacy, not for victory. We're, we're going to use this, ish, this situation, this conflict, we're going to use this to make us tighter, not break us apart. And we can agree on that ahead of time. Number four, we share the conflict and we use it. See, it's not your problem, not my problem. We're going to share the conflict. This is our, our issue right here. And we are going to work on this, right? For the sake of us. See, it's our, we're sharing this, okay? Uh, number five, we affirm one another's character. Affirm, build each other up. I think this is beautiful what they do in the Song of Songs, how they praise one another. And then number six, solicit the help of some friends if need be. And number seven, loving language to build them up. Loving language to build them up. You know, as I studied this, I couldn't help but wonder if the Apostle John was thinking about the Song of Songs chapter 5 as he wrote the book of Revelation. 
Because you know, the Song of Songs, as we just saw this scene, it's a scene where he's knocking on the door and she's not answering his call. And you know, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, John's writing to the church of Laodicea on behalf of Jesus. And the church of Laodicea is a church whose love had grown cold. They, they, they were lukewarm. They were the lukewarm church, if you're familiar with that section of the Bible. And what does Jesus say to them? Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and, and eat with him and he with me. The humility of Jesus is stunning. Because if anyone has the right to barge in and break the door down, it's Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? And yet he doesn't do that at all, does he? He doesn't force himself or push his way into your heart. He stands at the door and he knocks. And he makes an invitation. And you and I respond often like the Shulamite does in the Song of Songs, don't we? We have our excuses. Ah, not now, Lord. Ah, I got this to do, that to do. Ah, you know, we have our reasons. And how does Jesus respond? He leaves myrrh on the door handle. Is he not, is Jesus not myrrh himself? He's the myrrh that God left on the door handle. If I can switch the metaphor a little bit slightly. You know, when Jesus, he died on the cross, he paid for our sins in order to reconcile us with God. And then he's buried in a tomb. And you know that myrrh was one of the spices that they would have anointed his body with had he not risen from the dead. Yeah. So it's safe to say that Jesus is the myrrh that God has left on the door handle of our lives saying, listen, I value you. You are important to me. I want to work this out between us. I don't want this separation between us. When you're ready, let's talk. In fact, that's what he says through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 18. Isaiah says, come now, let us read. This is God speaking. Come now, let us reason together. Who are we? that God would want to reason with us. Can you let that hit your heart? Do you realize he doesn't have to reason with the likes of us? Do you see the humility of God? It's stunning that he would stand at the door knocking and he would say, hey, let's reason, let's talk. And then he says, though your sins are like scarlet, they're going to be white as snow. You know, though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. We're going to, we're going to forgive them. We're going to wash them clean. We're going to restore this brokenness in our relationship. See, this is God's heart for you. And I love the fact that God could have won the argument easily, but he didn't. He chose the more difficult road to win your heart. 
That's literally what he's been working on since the beginning of time. To win your heart. So he is the consummate lover, you know, knocking on the door, saying, come, let's work this out. So this morning, I invite you to do that. If, if you have not yet begun a relationship with Jesus, if you don't know what it is to have a right relationship, to be in right standing with God, to know that if you die today, you could actually look him in the eye and embrace him as opposed to hiding in shame and condemnation. If you don't know the freedom of being at peace with God, I invite you today to respond to his invitation. He's knocking at your door. Do you hear him? If you open it, Jesus says, I will come in and we will eat together and we're going to enjoy one another. Hmm. How could I not say yes to that? But I also think about this on another level and then I pray. I can tell you that my heart is not much at all like the heart of God. When I see his heart to reconcile, and I see that he could have won the argument, and he chose instead to try to win my heart, and I see his love for other people, like the value that he's placed on me in trying to reconcile with me, the value that God's placed on you to reconcile with you, right? You see that today. And then I'm convicted of all the times that I devalued other people when I had a snag with them. And instead of trying to reconcile, I just wrote them off because that was easier. I say, Lord, please forgive me. I want your heart, God. I do. And then I think about all the times I've done that in my marriage. You know, like if there's one person on this planet that I ought to value highly enough to work things out with, it would be my wife, would it not? You agree? And yet, all the times in the 34 years that I've not at all handled conflict in a godly way, God, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. So, let's pray together. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We hope that today's message was a blessing to you. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org.